a seat at one of the psychologists from the student counseling unit at the University of Pretoria. I'm very excited to host the sixth podcast episode in our mental health and well-being, well-being podcast series, proudly brought to you by the Student Counseling Unit. This podcast series has been specifically created to enhance the mental health and well-being of our UP students. Our topic for this podcast episode is extremely important. We're going to talk about one of the most prevalent mental disorders in South Africa and globally, namely anxiety disorders. For our episode today, we will unpack what anxiety is, what are common symptoms of anxiety to look out for, what can contribute towards someone experiencing anxiety, and also how anxiety is treated. We will also explore practical tips and advice on how to manage anxiety, and even how to assist a friend or family member with anxiety. For this episode, I'm extremely excited and honored to have my colleague, Mr. Quentin Ludic, a registered clinical psychologist with 11 years experience who works at the Student Counseling Unit at UP. He has worked with clients or patients in both public and private settings, and he has a special interest in working with trauma, depression, anxiety, and addiction. Having to live with an anxiety disorder himself, he has agreed to do this podcast episode to send a message of hope to listeners that anxiety does not have to rule your life. Quinton, thank you very, very much for being willing to share your expertise with us today. Thank you for the the warm welcome and introduction, Rukaya. Quinton, can you tell us what exactly is clinical anxiety? Um, And how is it different from stress and normal anxiety? Clinical anxiety, or better described as an anxiety disorder, is when a person experiences a degree of anxiety that significantly interferes with one or more areas of their daily function. So to best answer your question with the difference between clinical and normal anxiety, I would like to refer to the descriptions, as well as the interrelations between stress, fear, anxiety, and panic. Firstly, if we look at stress, stress is your body's natural way of trying to respond to a kind of demand that is being placed on it. It may even be a threat. It is your body's way of preparing yourself to overcome a danger or even the challenge that is being placed on you. Your body would try to adjust to this, your heart would start pounding faster, your muscles tighten, your blood pressure would rise, you would have quicker breaths, and your senses would sharpen up. And these changes would then increase your stamina and your strength, speed up reaction time, and it will enhance your focus so that you can meet the challenge that is in front of you. In an emergency situation, it can literally save your life. But Beyond a certain point, stress stops being helpful and it starts causing major damages to a person's health, mood, relationships, even productivity and other areas that are important in your life. Secondly, if we look at fear, fear is an emotional 
and a stress response. But this is to a real or a perceived imminent threat. It is being exposed to something that you find frightening. Imagine this, like when you would go for a jog and suddenly you have this big gnarling dog bulleting down towards you. It is where your body's autonomic nervous system would kick in. It would release a flood of stress hormones like adrenaline, cortisol, and it has to prepare you to fight or to flee. And these physical changes will then increase your strength and stamina. It will enhance your reaction time and your ability to focus to prepare you to either fight or flee from the danger that is at hand. It is serving a very important role in keeping us safe, but when the threat then dissipates, that reaction should also become less, and if not, it can also spill over into several other problems. Next, we look at anxiety. And anxiety is an emotional and a stress response. But this is more based on the anticipation of future threats. It can be described as worrying about things that may still happen. And it may even be described as a person experiencing it as an apprehension about what is to come. So think of it in this way. If you had to go for a COVID test and you sit there waiting, not knowing what is happening, that would be anticipating something that is important to you. Or what would happen if you walk on the street again where a dog attacked you previously? It's that worry or the anticipation of something that may happen again. And when a person is anxious, they experience physical and also psychological symptoms where they may experience sweating, they may feel palpitations or nausea. Very often they feel a tenseness, like a muscle tenseness and a fatigue with that as well, a restlessness or irritability. And when we look at thoughts, they can often have thoughts of impeding doom, where they may have reoccurring thoughts or preoccupied thoughts on the, the topics that they are worried about. We, if we look at the, the studies of anthropology, it's thought that anxiety has almost evolved as a way to protect us from future, future danger. So there's also in the literature um, referred to the space where there was a massive ink or an, the anticipation of where there was a massive increase in anxiety. And that is when men actually discovered that they had a future. When they stopped being nomadic and they had to stay in the space and start preparing and planning. And on top of that, there was the social component as well, because to survive, you have to be part of a community or it increases your ability to survive. So anxiety can be seen as a way to protect us from future, future danger. So it is seen as normal in certain circumstances, but if it persists and it interferes and it starts disrupting a person's functioning, it does go towards a disorder. What we also need to keep in mind is that fear and anxiety often may feed into each other, saying that fear can cause anxiety and anxiety can also cause fear. Lastly, we look at panic. And panic, or a panic attack, is a sudden episode of intense fear that is usually triggered by a reaction to something that is not apparent or that there is no real threat or danger in the moment. So to a sense, we can consider a panic attack almost as a false alarm after fear reaction. 
Now, this is extremely frightening. When a person experiences a panic attack, it feels like they are losing control. It can feel as if they are having a heart attack, that they are literally dying in that moment. We would often find people in the casualties at a hospital coming in there believing that they had a heart attack. And only after the doctor ruled that out through tests can they only recognize that it is panic or it was a panic attack. So it can be very, very debilitating. By looking at clinical anxiety or anxiety disorders, the way in how we classify them is through a diagnostic criteria that we would find within the, the DSM-5, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. We're currently using the fifth version, and within that, there's the systematic classifications in where there's certain criteria that a person needs to meet in order to have a specific anxiety disorder. I'd like to just walk through or talk people through some of these disorders without going into too much detail, but just so that people would have a background of the different kinds of anxiety disorders that we can diagnose. I'm going to start with them as they would often start in, in the chronology of a lifespan, so earlier in life, but that's not fixed and to say that it will definitely be like this for each person, but it's just the way and how it is classified. Firstly, I would like to just give a brief description of separation anxiety. And this is an anxiety or fear that arises usually within children about being separated from attachment figure. The second one is selective mutism. And this consists of a person that fails to speak in certain social situations where they are expected to speak, like, for instance, at school or to a stranger, but they do actually speak in other situations, like at home. Next, we have specific phobias, and that is where a person would have fear or anxiety or even avoid the circumstances or objects that are associated to specific situations. To give an example of this, it would be something like arachnophobia, where a person has a severe fear of spiders. And just imagine how debilitating that would be if you can't enter a room because there's a poster of a spider against the wall. Next, we look at social anxiety, or often referred to as social phobia. And this is where an individual is fearful or anxious or avoidant of social interactions or situations that involve the possibility of being scrutinized, such as meeting new people, doing something unfamiliar, or an observation where they perceive that they may be observed. Next, we have panic disorder. And panic disorder is almost like having recurrent, unexpected panic attacks that persist, and a person keeps on worrying about having more of these panic attacks. It is often then associated with the next category as well, which is referred to as agoraphobia. And that is where a person is fearful and anxious about being exposed or being in a situation where they may not be able to escape. And as a result of that, may develop panic-like symptoms. Examples of this may be where people wouldn't want to make use of public transport, be in open spaces, being in closed spaces, being in a crowd or standing in line or being home outside alone where help would not be available. The next group is generalized anxiety disorder. And this is more a persistent 
or excessive, uh, excessive kind of anxiety that a person would have where they worry about various domains in their life, which would include work, it would include performance at school, relationships, finances. It's basically where it spills over into various aspects of life where you worry about. And with generalized anxiety, it usually then has a lot of physical symptoms that accompany this, like where a person would feel fatigue, be unedged, they would struggle to concentrate, have muscle tension with it, it disrupts their sleep, and they often would say that their mind goes blank and, and they, they, they can concentrate on, on, on certain things for, for longer periods in time. The last two groups that we also have are where people have anxiety disorders that are the direct effect of either a substance or a medicine that a person is using. So the substance or the medication causes the anxiety disorder, or it is when the anxiety disorder is caused by another medical condition, such as a person's thyroid causing a person to experience significant anxiety. What we also need to remember about anxiety is that anxiety often does not exist on its own. We find that it often is a, co a comorbidity to other mental health conditions, such as depression, people suffering from trauma, somatic disorders like illness anxiety, people using substances, and it can also be strongly associated to certain personality types or styles. Thanks so much for that. I think you've really um, provided an in-depth um, description of what um, anxiety is all about. And you've also taken our listeners through some of the various types of anxiety disorders. Now, I want to just highlight one important thing that came out from what you were saying, that anxiety or stress isn't normal. It's actually adaptive for us to function effectively. But when anxiety starts to impair our function in the important areas of our life, that's when it becomes a disorder. Am I right in terms of uh, highlighting that for our listeners? Absolutely, Rakea. And I think, yeah, thank you for, for taking it back into the very valuable understanding to say that Anxiety and fear and stress are normal reactions to what is asked of us in life. It's when they go behind that. It's when it causes certain areas of our life to not be in order anymore. That is when it is a disorder. Mm, I like how you put that. That, that is um, said so beautifully. And I think that leads us to our next question. Can you tell us how prevalent are anxiety disorders amongst the general population compared to university students and which types of anxiety disorders are most common amongst university students, especially now during COVID-19? Rukeya, worldwide anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorders that are experienced. So this, this may differ between countries. And if you would look at one of the, the articles that was published by the World Health Organization, they estimate that one in 13 people globally suffer from anxiety each year. So if we bring it a bit more closer to home, we can look at some of the, the literature and the information available from, from SADC, 
the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. And they estimate that approximately one in five South Africans are affected by anxiety each year. There was also the study, the, the SASH study, the South African Stress and Health Study, where they found that anxiety disorders were the most prevalent class of lifetime mental, that mental health disorders, and that measured up in about 15.8% of, of the disorders. So to, to bring it a bit more relevant to our student population, we see in research that anxiety can look different at different ages. So that, that doesn't mean that it gets worse with age, but it means that the number of people that may suffer from anxiety may change across a lifespan. If you would look at something like panic disorder, this often starts in young adulthood. So it would be something that we would associate with the, the, the group in our students that we would see. And if we look at a, a generalized anxiety disorder, we know that it becomes a, a, a bit more increased as age increases. And it's most common and, it, and it's at its highest level amongst middle-aged adults. And that's most likely because this is where we have the most things that we need to worry about, where we get into the space where various things are being condensed. And looking at the ladies, unfortunately, the ladies are twice as likely as men to suffer from anxiety disorders. If we, if we look at a very specific study that was um, published in the South African Medical Journal in 2020, there was research done at the University of Cape Town on the burden of depression and anxiety on the medical student population. And in that study, they found that one in four of the 470 plus students that, they, that, that partake in the study um, actually reported having depression and anxiety disorders. They were on medication and 45% of them were above the rate for anxiety disorder. Now, I know this is specific for one university and a group of students, but it's still very relevant to try and understand what certain student groups may present with. Thanks so much for that. And, and what is standing out for me from what you said just now is that one in five, according to the SEDAC study, one in five South Africans are affected each year by anxiety. And I think the global estimates seem more conservative than the more local estimates. And I think um, from what you've said, it is a challenge that our student population also faces. Um, so thank you so much for that. Can you tell us, Quentin, what are some of the common symptoms of clinical anxiety that our students can be aware of, which can help in the early detection of anxiety-related conditions? And also which professionals can help in screening for anxiety-related conditions. Okay, when we, when we think of the, the manifestations of anxiety, we, we need to look at the three areas in which people most common experience these symptoms. And those are physiological symptoms where you have visible experiences within your body. It's also psychological experiences that people would have. And then there's certain typical behavior that would be associated with people that may have anxiety. So to help our listeners understand that, we can just look at some of the physiological symptoms that we may associate with it. So many people with anxiety would struggle with um, sweating, they would have rapid heartbeats, their breath would, would become quicker, sometimes shorter within that, they would start having muscle trembles, nauseas, 
um, having that tightness on the chest, feeling something gnawing in, on the inside of your, the pit of your stomach, having almost like temperature changes, like flushes and chills, um, digestive challenges, stomach becoming ups, uh, upset, feeling a bit dizzy, having headaches, and then also quite a lot of tension like in muscle spasms and muscle pain that they would have. If we look at the mind symptoms or the psychological symptoms, often thoughts, having impending senses of doom, feeling overwhelmed, unable to think clearly, excessive worries with that as well. We would find people going into catastrophic thoughts, expecting the worst, being obsessed with stuff, that inner restless, sometimes it feels like a wolf howling inside of you and you want to run away, but you don't know where to with that as well. Um, you'll have that irritability. And also like a tiredness, a mental tiredness that you'll find because of thinking like this all the time. And behavioral, and when we look at behavioral symptoms, people often are restless and they can't sit still. Or at times they would withdraw socially with that as well. They may be startled from time to time, and jumpy because of that. They can have challenges in performing with everyday tasks. Or they may go to things that they want to try and ease that, like start using certain substances. We're doing that. So when we think about the, the symptoms that we find regarding anxiety, it can be in the whole spectrum or only some of those symptoms. So if a person experiences these and you think you may be suffering from anxiety, you may actually start looking for help from a, a variety of people that can assist you. And that can be your GP, go and see your doctor, explain your symptoms, they can do some screening with you. It can be a nurse at a clinic that can assess and, and also try and get you into the right space where somebody can help you. It can be a psychiatrist. If it's severe and a person would sit for panic attacks, that's, that's quite debilitating. Or it can be a registered psychologist or counselor that may be trained in ways to help you alleviate and deal with your anxiety. Thanks, thanks a lot for that. According to research, what can cause or contribute towards clinical anxiety, and what are some of the factors that place people at a greater risk for developing clinical anxiety or anxiety disorders? If we look at research, the exact cause of anxiety disorders cannot be narrowed down to just one single contributing factor. So researchers uh, basically believe that it's more a combination of genetic and environmental factors that play a role with, within that. If we look at these factors, we can try and break them down into some of them that have been studied and been indicated towards the, the etiology or the cause of anxiety disorders. And the first would be to say our genetics. Sometimes we see that it runs within families. So if you have a family member with an anxiety disorder, you may be predisposed and you would be at a greater risk of developing an anxiety disorder. That doesn't mean you will, but it means that you may be pre-exposed. Then we also look at stress, because every person encounters stress. But what happens if we have persistent, excessive, or unresolved stress? Those things may, may enhance our chances of developing um, chronic anxiety with that as well. What we also see is through researchers that look at brain chemistry, they can see that there's certain areas in your brain that regulate the fear responses and that, and that might also may be involved when a person's exposed to prolonged periods of stress. There can be social factors as well, like the areas in which we live, which may be unsafe or dangerous. 
It may be part where there's learned behavior, where we see how certain caregivers deal with things with that as well. So social components can also play a role with how we perceive certain things. And then also our software, or if we want to say our personality style or types. Certain personality styles are just more prone to anxiety. If we think of busy, high-strung, type A kind of personalities that are go-getters and put a lot of pressure on themselves, they are more prone to developing certain anxiety disorders than people that are very relaxed or laid back. Another thing can also be trauma, where it's about a person being the victim of trauma, being close to somebody who was a victim of trauma, or even witnessing something. The impact in how traumatic events may be processed within a person's system may also lead to the, the developing of, of certain traumas. And then, as I also mentioned previously, um, when we look at, at sex studies or gender studies, we know that ladies are twice as likely as men to develop certain anxiety disorder. So by saying these things and looking at causes, I also want the listeners to remember that anxiety or anxiety disorders are not your fault, okay? Everybody has them. If you develop an anxiety disorder, it can happen to anybody, and you shouldn't blame yourself for having that, okay? So the factors that I mentioned may lead to anxiety disorders, but that doesn't mean because you are exposed to challenging situations that these adverse situations or the stress or trauma or having a family member with, with an anxiety disorder will definitely mean that you will get it. But what I would like to ask people that hear this, if you would be exposed to high levels of these kind of examples, I would, I would recommend seeking support and seeking help, sometimes as a preventative measure, so that you can learn and cope with, with these things before it, it develops into a, a, an anxiety disorder. Yeah, I really like what you're saying there, Quentin, because what you're saying is if we can seek um, the necessary services early on, we can actually have better outcomes. So I, I like that message. And I think um, for all of us, you know, we all deal with stress. We know in South Africa there's, um, there's a high level of trauma, there's crime, etc. There's different kinds of trauma. But if we can seek out the necessary services and the support services, we can, we can have better outcomes. So thanks, thanks a lot for that. So we've come to uh, one of the really exciting questions today. And Quentin, can you share with our listeners what treatments are best for anxiety? That's a very good question because after we identify and diagnose anxiety, we want to know what we can do about it. So the best way to treat anxiety disorders is actually through a combination of self-care, psychotherapy, and medication. That combination will, will be different for each person because what may work well for one client may not be indicated in the next. So in some cases, we may start even with self-care practices where people would start implementing that. And by doing so, they would start having um, a reduction in their anxiety symptoms. For other people, it starts with psychotherapy. And in some cases, the anxiety is so severe that people may start using medication to help them just contain the situation until they learn certain skills 
within psychotherapy or self-care. So it can be a combination between the three of, of the, the factors that I just mentioned. Maybe I can just go into some of the, the descriptions within that. So if I would refer to self-care, that would be a lot with, to do with lifestyle management, the ability for a person to manage their stress, how to focus on ways to relax, taking care of yourself, like healthy habits of physical exercise, regulating your sleep, like in a sleep hygiene pattern, and putting in good things in your body, like in a healthy diet, and then also avoiding specific things like alcohol, caffeine, and, and, and trying to, to not smoke with that as well. So self-care is that space where you would look after yourself in persisting patterns of doing daily things that would serve you in alleviating your anxiety. When looking at psychotherapy, that would be the, the evidence-based therapy, which is mostly talk therapies that you would find from um, registered psychologists. And, and these would include therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, where a person would have uh, an exposure to a technique to understand how our thoughts and behaviors and our emotions work together and how our inner workings of thoughts can influence the way in how we feel and, and, and actually act on certain things. It's based on mindfulness-based therapies to be present and ground and allow ourselves to actually work through certain things that we experience in the moment. There's also exposure therapies that allows a systematic desensitization where people gradually start um, through exposure and then they would have less of an impact of the symptoms. And, and another one is also somatic experiencing where, where people get into spaces and therapeutic spaces where they get taught how to promote self-regulation with biofeedback and ways where they get to, to coach their bodies to also self-regulate. There are other ways as well, but I just mentioned a few of the therapeutic modalities. When then also referring to medication with that as well, you would often find that the doctors would prescribe antidepressants or the SSRIs or SNRIs, um, which help with anxiety. And that's also often very helpful when there's a comorbidity, because as I mentioned earlier, some people may suffer from depression and anxiety, and it's found that SSRIs and SNRIs may be very, very beneficial with that as well. That would usually be the first cause of medication. Um, other times they may give some of the older medication, like the tricyclic antidepressants, but that's usually not the first line due to it having more side effects. And then very, um, I think very effective medicine is often our, our anxiolytics or our tranquilizers. People would know them as benzodiazepines, which are very good at symptom reduction. They work very fastly, but it's very important that our listeners know that these need to be used with caution because some of the medication may impair a person's ability to perform tasks like driving because of the sedatory effect, and they are very habit-forming, highly habit-forming. So people may become addicted to them. And then additional medication, there's others as well, but I know some of my clients are using are, are, are beta blockers, which also just help to regulate the, the heartbeat with that as well, and that also has an effect on, on, on reducing the anxiety. So looking at the, the various kinds of interventions and treatments that we have to help with anxiety disorders, I want our listeners to just know that anxiety disorders are highly treatable. But if we look at the statistics, in the United States, only 30% of the people that suffer from anxiety would actually receive treatment. 
And in another study, they found that less than 50% of the people that suffer from anxiety disorders actually do seek treatment. And that brings us to the question to say, what may result in this phenomenon presenting? And one can speculate on some of these things. So one may be that we want to look at the availability of services. Uh, do, every, do these services have, have, have accessible means to people that need them? To look at society, and a big thing is associated with stigma, associated with mental health. I think it's quite challenging for people often to admit that they are vulnerable. We often live in a society where vulnerability is frowned upon. And that's why it's so important to look at the awareness of mental health to, to try and enhance people making use of services. And then another component may also be that the anxiety disorders themselves may be significantly hampering people in seeking the, the help with it. If I'm so anxious about going to seek help from a doctor, it may mean that I may not even go. Or if I'm fearful to get into transport to get to a space like that. So I think... This may probably be due to a combination of factors of availability, the, the disorders themselves, and then stigma associated to, to mental health and challenges that people may have with, with being vulnerable enough and, and doing what they need to do to seek the help. Thank you so much for, for sharing yeah. that with us, Quentin. I think we want to really send out the message to our students, to our listeners, that if you have um, or you suspect that you may have an anxiety disorder or any other mental health condition, please seek help. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, you know, it's not uh, something that you're doing. You're not to blame. It's just like any other illness and there's help available. So that, that leads us beautifully to our next question. Um, can you tell us, what support services does the university provide to assist students with anxiety and other mental health conditions or illnesses? And are there online services that have been specifically created to assist our students, especially now during COVID-19? The University of Pretoria provides several avenues in which our students can receive help with anxiety, as well as other mental health problems. I can list a few of these services. We have the student health services in which our students have access to go and see a doctor or a nurse who may assist. There's also the, the designated student counseling unit with registered psychologists that provide psychotherapeutic services. And previously, these services were only rendered in person, but the whole counseling unit moved into an online service, which means that students may access telemedicine or telehealth services where they can still have e-counseling, as, as it is referred to during the COVID um, period. Additionally, there's also the 24-7 UP Care Line that is manned by the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. And this assists students that are in spaces where they experience emergencies. They also train certain peer support group leaders, which then help facilitate, um, I think, peer support groups that students may, may be having as well. I'm also very excited to share with our listeners about the Student Counseling Unit's very own chatbot, which we have dubbed SCUB, that's spelled S-C-U hyphen B. Now, this chatbot does not replace traditional therapy, 
but it is actually a resource that allows students to learn more, to read more about one of three avenues, which is depression, anxiety, or lifestyle management. And it permits them to create a toolkit for themselves where they can then allocate resources that they find helpful in the literature and the resources that are shared there. We will have additional avenues for other topics to be added in due time, but for now we have the three major topics. What the, the, the Scooby app or the Scooby chatbot then also allows students to do is to directly contact the UPK line in, in times of an emergency or a crisis. They can also directly contact the student counseling unit should they want to make appointments for therapy. And then it's quite easy to access the Scooby um, chatbot. Students would just go into the UP portal. They would click on Scooby and then basically just log in with their student credentials. Wow, I think that sounds really, really amazing. I think from what you've said, there's a lot of services currently available for our students. Um, so, so thanks for sharing those details. Um, we know that professional mental health services are vital in order to treat anxiety disorders effectively. For someone who's already accessing professional services, such as psychotherapy, and maybe even consulting with a psychiatrist or medical doctor, what self-help practices can they implement? So basically what self-help tips or advice would you suggest they implement to better manage their anxiety, particularly now during the COVID-19 pandemic? Rukaya, the COVID-19 pandemic has turned the world on its head. And I think if you look at a recent survey that the World Health Organization did, they saw that there was a disruption and even a halt in critical mental services in 93 of 93% of the countries worldwide. And that, on top of that, there was an increase in the demand for mental health care um, services with that as well. About 60% of countries reported that the services were significantly impaired for vulnerable people. And about two thirds of countries said that there was a proportional or a significant proportional disruption to counseling and psychotherapy, which then means that self-help and self-care in, in a time like this actually becomes quite crucial for people that are suffering from mental health problems. So to look at certain tips within that as well, what can someone do? And I think the first thing that we always want to try and do is to reestablish a new and a healthy routine that works for you. Old ways didn't work, so it's about reestablishing a healthy routine that works for you. How do we do something like that? We, we have to start with the basics. And the basics would be to look after our physical health. Start by making sure that you can regulate your sleep, eat well getting your exercises, avoid the toxins, the alcohol, the smoking, and too much caffeine, and especially recreational drugs with that as well. We also want to look at reestablishing support, your support network. And this is your responsibility to do. Support is not going to just come to you. So even though we are in a space where we may be isolated, that support can even be digital. Talk to somebody you can trust. Okay, take Take some time to find somebody in which you can confide. And if you're already receiving treatment from a medical health practitioner, consider telemedicine because 
70% of countries have adopted telemedicine or teletherapy to over, try and overcome the disruptions. And working with my clients through the, the, the mediums of telehealth, it's still very beneficial and effective in, in treating anxiety disorders. But please, it's important that you reestablish your support network. Another thing is also curb some of your activities, like regulating your social media. You have a lot of time now. It's very important to be selective on your sources that you, that you acquire information from. Take breaks from watching it. Give yourself dedicated time. Choose to read and listen to things that are dedicated to giving you accurate information, like listening to this podcast right now. It's, it's getting information that may be serving you. Also, working internally with yourself. People that are anxious often struggle with various thoughts that can instill the feelings of anxiety. So keep tab on your thoughts. Try and manage those worries. Make time for you to look at that as well by having a journal, tracking thoughts, and continue with the skills that you may have learned in therapy. And if you feel stuck with some of that, contact your therapist for that too. And very important, make time to relax. Okay, blow off steam. Try daily activities where you breathe. You can have mindful exercises. We know that yoga has, has great, um, I, I think, feedback and, and, and literature to say how it reduces the effects of anxiety. And find something that, that works for you. Being outside, being inside, as long as it is relaxing and you allow yourself to also let your hair down a bit. Thank you very much for that, Quentin. I think you mentioned uh, a variety of different strategies or tips um, that our listeners, our students can, can be mindful of and implement. Our very last question, what tips or advice would you give to someone who has a friend or family member with an anxiety disorder, or they may suspect they have an anxiety-related condition? And this person is unsure of how to support or assist the person, especially now during COVID-19. That is very important as well, because we live amongst people where we, we care about them and then we see them presenting with severe anxiety symptoms. And to help someone with anxiety can seem very intimidating or even daunting because we see people feeling overwhelmed and what is it like when somebody is busy having a panic attack, panic attack around us? To, to best assist us is to say, can I acquire knowledge on the situation? It's important to know how anxiety works. And through that, we would have a better understanding. So take time in, in reading up about anxiety disorders to psychically educate yourself with the knowledge of what this person may be going through. It's very important to understand that anxiety is a human feature. It is not a flaw for the person to have anxiety, but sometimes it goes beyond the ability of a person to cope, and that's when it starts snowballing. That is not a flaw. It's a space where a person just stopped having the ability to regulate that. And that's very important to understand that when we approach the people. When we approach them in trying to help them, it's best to ask them as well what kind of support they would prefer instead of guessing. So some people may need practical support in that moment where it is about finding some, some knowledge or looking for a therapist while they're doing that, 
Well, other people would just need somebody that is there for them emotionally. To be there in a space where you would be present with them and to comfort them so that they recognize that they're still a human. If a friend of yours maybe have, may have some insight in, into that anxiety, you can be part of some of the therapeutic processes where you can help them identify some of the patterns that reoccur and you, you get them to almost like ground in some of the spaces where they find some difficulty. But please ask the permission with that as well and make sure that you're well informed if you're part of, of, of such a structure. So when I, when I think of support and providing support, it means being there for somebody but not taking over. This is a very important feature with some of the anxiety disorders. Avoidance is a core feature in anxiety. So we do not want to strengthen avoidant patterns for people that are suffering with anxiety. If, if we look at a good general principle, it is to say, keep in mind that support means to help somebody help themselves and not doing it for them. And, and here's an example, especially of this as well. Sometimes people may struggle to, to make that first appointment, to, see, to look for a therapist that they would find. Don't make the appointment for them. Help them choose a therapist and support them in making that, that appointment for themselves. And also, if you would think about for them going to therapy, it would be good to support them going there, but not going into the room with them where that is what. So there's a degree in how we want to avoid people becoming dependent on us or codependent on us to try and manage their, their anxiety. Saying that, there are some exceptions. When you really see somebody is experiencing other comorbid symptoms with their anxiety, like severe clinical depression or they are suicidal, where that is well, then I would say be proactive and intervene with getting the person the, the right kind of help. Okay. People that, that may be experiencing things like panic disorders may literally feel fear that they are going to die in that moment and that they are crazy for having that. So just reminding yourself that you're a human, comforting the person and saying, you are experiencing an anxiety phenomena. That doesn't mean you stop being a human being. You're still a person. You're still the same person. You still mean the same to me. And you would reassure them in a way with that, which is very comforting with that as well. It's validating their position where they are still being a human and not allowing the stigmatization or the way in how the anxiety gets to define them as being a person. And then lastly, recognize that your goal is to help, not to cure the person from anxiety. If you take on too much responsibility for people and their anxiety, you may may as well be in, in a trap where you, you may experience anxiety yourself. So it's very important to recognize that wanting to, to do too much may also be a sign of your own anxiety. Thank you so much for that, Quentin. I think you mentioned so many important points um, on how to help a loved one or friend who may be experiencing anxiety. I, I want to... Again, thank you for availing yourself and thank you for uh, sharing your expertise with us today. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast or if you have any comments on how we can improve, please send an email to studentcounseling at up.ac.za with your feedback 
under the subject heading Anxiety Podcast. Look out for more podcast episodes throughout the year. If you're experiencing any mental health difficulties or suspect that you may have symptoms of anxiety, remember help is available. Stay connected to others and reach out for help. Talk to someone close to you whom you trust or contact the student counseling unit on studentcounseling at up.ac.za. You can also contact our 24-hour UPK line on 0800-747-747. Thank you for listening. Take care. Stay safe.